out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the bass player, the one and only Johnny Bridgewood, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. One-time member of the Norwich Bass Band, Fireball XL5, and then was in the Stingrays, and then played with such folk as Morrissey in the 90s with several albums and releases and tours, and also went on to work with people like Catherine Williams and also Thea Gilmore and lots, lots more. Anyway, this is the interview, so you're going to find out more about that during this long chat. Anyway... After several minutes of casual conversation, we got down to that very exciting subject. That was the early formative years. Johnny, we want to know it. We want to know everything and we want it now. Yeah, I was into all that glam stuff, you know, being the same age. I mean, I was aware of of stuff in the 60s, not in, in great detail. You know, you'd hear things on the radio. So I was vaguely aware of, of the Beatles um other bands although i you know i i just remember hearing things on the radio but i never really knew who the bands were apart from the beatles you know yes Um, we had the beatles films didn't we which was sort of yeah of course yeah and an exciting thing as well as um cliff richard's summer holidays which also seems to be occasionally which of course yeah yeah (laughs) usually during the summer holidays yeah i know such good Um, scheduling Dusty Springfield, I remember seeing on TV. I really liked her. Uh, and, you know, I've grown up to be a, a big fan of Dusty. Um, you know, always liked her. Um, so I suppose those those were things that I liked, but I came back to those later, yeah. um, having got into music proper. With T-Rex, really. T-Rex was my big thing. I loved Mark Bolan. I liked Sweet. I liked Bowie, but less than t-rex at the time although obviously eventually bowie is, is a better artist really um but yeah all that stuff you know yes and did you have a kind of a musical household was were your parents at all into music no not really my father liked things like mario lanza <laughs> which was <laughs> not my cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> a bit operatic you know so no not not so much my older sister was a massive Slade fan mm-hmm. she had every Slade record and my older brother went to see Slade when I was a kid um he'd been to see Slade and he had uh, Dave Hill was throwing out glitter so I had uh I, I put some on a piece of tape and taped it to the headboard of my bed <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful homage actually I suppose when you- I was about yeah, I was about seven, <laughs> seven or eight, maybe. Yes, well, I guess that's that's the, you know, we, we were big fans. And I guess at that stage, we had been watching Blue Peter with their sticky black, sticky back plastic and um, yeah, such, yeah. such DIY sort of decor, which was quite sweet, actually. Yes. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Where What was your sort of town, city? Or uh, well, area? I'm from Hanley in Stoke-on-Trent originally. Right. Um. I moved to Norwich or just outside Norwich when I was 14. So that's where I started playing music. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know if you were sort of from Norwich in the beginning, actually. No, no, no. I I was an interloper. (laughs) You were definitely an interloper that time. I was. And was your sort of older 
you know, brothers, sisters, were they a massive influence on your kind of musical direction? I mean, you did just listen um, to them. No, not really. Uh, they didn't play. My, my brother briefly played the violin, you know, when kids get a, a violin and it seems like a good idea mm. to make a bit of noise that isn't very pleasant. So yeah, he did that for maybe a short period of time. It was there, then it wasn't there. Um, sure. I don't think, I don't recall my sister playing anything. Mm. Um, I have two younger brothers that don't play anything. I, I, I'm the, the, the odd one out. You are and in a I'm, good way, and I'm slightly middle <laughs> child as well, which is like that, yeah, yeah, like, that's all good. Yeah, yeah. So, how come you moved down from Stoke on Trent to to just the outskirts of Norwich? That's probably quite a traumatic move. Uh, yeah, we we briefly lived in Suffolk beforehand as well for a couple of years. Uh, my father's job; he was a psychiatric nurse, so he got a job at another hospital, basically. Yes. Uh, Homestead, just outside, uh, about seven miles outside Norwich. Yeah. And when did you decide to think about, you know, picking up an instru instrument? Uh, when I was a kid, I always, I, I basically wanted to be Mark Bolland or George Best. I, sure. I, I can, I can to relate to the latter, actually. I got a pair of George Best football boots. Oh, right. Yeah. I never did get a pair of those, but I had the, had the strip, you know. Um, and I played school football and I, I, really thought that I would probably be a footballer, which seemed yeah. tangible as I had a football, you see, and not an yeah. instrument. <laughs> <laughs> and what position so, did you play? Uh, I suppose I was mostly midfield, but sometimes I used to float around and play pretty much anywhere except for goalkeeper, you know. Yeah. So a bit like the Dutch football team of 74? A bit like that, yeah. I liked Johan Cruyff and... Niskins and all those guys, you know. Johnny Rep. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was my World Cup, 74. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, that was a good World Cup, yeah. A classic. I was still heartbroken with the, the Dutch. Not as bad as the, the final in 78. Uh, they, they sort of should have won. And Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, they were probably best they win. did lose because they would have all been killed, probably. So Yeah. Um, yes, anyway, there you go. So, yeah, so when, so Mark Boland, George Best, good combination. What role models? This is good. Um, so, yeah, so when did the musical instrument sort of appear in your life? Well, uh, when I got, when I moved to Norwich, really, I mean, I'd wanted to, I, I used to kind of have dreams about being in a band, what it would be like being on stage, playing playing a gig and um it, you know it, it was just something that kept springing up in my mind and it gradually took over from the football uh, in my last year at school um in the summer holidays I fell off a climbing frame injuring my right leg and I couldn't play football for a while because I, I was hobbling you know so mm. I didn't make the football team and I, I kind of fell out with the the guy ran it as well so then I, it was just full-on music um it became my outlet I started going to gigs um I had a really good friend called Spike who's still in Norfolk his dad had a really good rock and roll record collection Gene Vincent Eddie Cochran all those guys uh and we used to skip school and and wait till his mum had gone to work sneak into the house get these records up play them put them all back as we'd found them sneak out and then you'd sort of come home as if you'd been to school you see <laughs> oh my god that's so 
It's like that David Essex film, That Will Be The Day, isn't it? Some yeah, yeah, yeah. We were educating ourselves, you know? Yes, absolutely. And they were all the bands that uh, Lemmy used to always talk about was his kind of musical influences. And yeah. to David Bowie, they were born in the same year, but they always mentioned Little Richard, Eddie Cochran. Yeah, Little Richard, yeah. Gene Vincent, Jerry Lee Lewis. It was just there. That was the ones that they grew yeah, up. Yeah, so that was suddenly... Um, I was just heavily into that sound. You know, punk was was happening just right before I, I moved. Uh, I moved to Norwich, but well, just outside Plumstead in in September '77. So punk had been happening obviously just before that, and at the time, uh, punk really started to explode outside London. You know, with the Sex Pistols and everything. Uh, I, I I liked it. I liked the energy, but there was something that I didn't quite connect with. And then uh, I borrowed an Elvis record off this girl that I knew that had loads of the early stuff on, you know, um, Let's my baby house. Yeah, all that, all that kind of stuff. The sun Yeah, yeah. And I thought, what, what's this stuff, you know? What, what, what's going on there? <laughs> and, and I was really attracted to the double bass. I didn't really know that it was a double bass. Um, but the sound of it, so it, it kind of it clicked with me yeah uh, I, I thought whatever that is that's what I want to do uh, and then as I say I moved to Norfolk I met my friend Spike uh, and his dad had all these records so we discovered more people uh, and then we used to go to uh, uh, Mick Robinson's shop on Pottergate it was called Robinson's then he changed the name to Alicat's yes uh, and he had all these rock and roll records in there. We, we couldn't afford them, but we'd just go and look at the covers, you know, <laughs> read, read the sleeve notes and just hang out in the shop and maybe buy the odd single if we had a bit of money. Yeah. Um, and uh, then we started going to school discos and then you'd see all the people that would turn up with their creepers on and, and quiffs and stuff. And you realised that you were all into Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran, so it sort of became a bit of a gang you know we had loads of friends uh and and that was sort of the seeds of my first band really yeah that's quite amazing because because I was you know I came you know I was brought up in Suffolk and um it was it was status quo it was kind of let you know sort of metal and status quo where you know they yeah. were a band that you just couldn't say anything about without you know you wouldn't want to say anything bad about status quo but um because you'd get beaten up because um it, so it's quite <laughs> tribal but I didn't realize they so I don't know. I, don't, I, I mean, you know, the rural landscape of Suffolk was nice, but it was kind of culturally quite, you know, you know, it was floundering, really, wasn't it? So um, yeah. yeah. So it's I'm amazed like you had a bit of a scene like that down, and also it was quite tribal because I can remember, you know, the beat brought an album out, and you know, it's like God, if you're a mod, you would get kind of punched, and it was like, oh, I only like them. I'm not going to. I'm not. You know, it was kind of. Yeah. It was yeah, a very yeah. tribal time. So um, it was incredibly. Yes, yeah. it, was, it was one of those, you know, moments you had to be quite careful, especially when you're still at school, because, you know, like I said, the quo was everything, really. So, um, <laughs> it's funny, band. So, yes, so, so yes, so you were there, and then you thought, let's be in a band. And, and this was, is this the band that you started, the XL5? Five, five, yeah, in Norwich. Um, yeah, well, we were a band. Uh, we used to go, there was a, a rock and roll club we discovered on a, on a Sunday night. 
um, which was in a, a couple of pubs in Thorpe and then found a home in a pub called the Griffin, which I believe has been knocked down now on, on the Yarmouth Road in Thorpe. And suddenly, you know, you know, there was all these older guys that were into rock and roll and stuff. And then the DJ, Big K, he would play all these other obscure records. So it, it opened up a, a whole new world, you know. Yes. Uh, we'd gone past the entry level of, of knowing a few people. To, we got to know all these obscure people like uh, Charlie Feathers and Matt Curtis and all those, those old rockabilly guys. Um, as well as loads of blues and rhythm and blues and, and you know, st 50s stuff in general. Um, and what we did, we'd go there every week, 50 pence to get in. It was, it was about 20 pence a pint beer. <laughs> Good old days. And um, we, we decided that we were a band. There was a, it was kind of up for grabs. If you got hold of an instrument, then you were in the band, you know. But there was a, <laughs> there was a small set of us who were definitely a band. We just didn't have any instruments. <laughs> yes, that's a, but it's interesting because I did an interview with um, Smutty Smith. He was in the Rockettes. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And he sort of just got kind of picked up by this, what is it? he was in Essex and Lee Black Childers said, God, you look great. Um, I'll take you to New York and then we'll just worry about the music later. And and became, you know, and got photographed by people like Robert Maplethorpe and hung out with Andy Warhol and people like that, which was kind of a bizarre story. So there was a sort of an undercurrent of, I suppose, that kind of rockabilly music going on at the time. But Yeah, there was, yeah. But if you were in London, you probably got chased down the street and beaten up, didn't you? But probably in Thorpe. Well, that, were... that used to happen in, in Norwich, you know. Did it? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, I mean, there was the punks, there was the, the skinheads. The skinheads were lethal. If you, I remember once going down by the station, um, and some skinheads came round the corner, and I thought oh, there's only a couple of them, and then the whole, you know, like a busload came round the corner, saw my hair, and just chased me. But because I'd been athletic, yes. I was able to. Do a, you, you threw a, you threw a faint, you threw a dummy, and then you were just gone like George Best. Yes, absolutely. Against, but that against happened. Chopper Harris. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They, that, that was it. They, they, they definitely chopped me if they got hold of me. But yeah, I and then um, I moved into Norwich, and I used to live off Riverside Road on Chalk Hill Road. And you used to have to be careful what you know. Sometimes how you went home. Like if it was a football match on, I couldn't walk home, and all the football supporters were coming out because I yeah. just get grief you know <laughs> um and you just had to be careful which way you went home at night because i used to drink on the other side of the city to where i lived uh rather than locally so uh, i used to have to navigate my way through <laughs> yeah yeah i know i suppose it the golden triangle was less kind of tribal wasn't it yeah it yeah was. you had all, all your smoothies in town you know yeah, but okay. once they were all, all a bit drunk, they, they, they'd see me coming. And <laughs> you don't really want the village, the village crowd in, in, in your sort of in your face on a Friday night, do you really? No, you don't. all those all those young farmers, lovely. No, definitely not. <laughs> so when did it? So was your first instrument a double bass then? It was double bass. Yeah, God, what, you went what straight for it. Went straight for it. Um, it, it found me really. What happened was uh, in our first band, Thorny the guitarist lead guitarist he got a guitar he's t two years younger than me he got a guitar for his 16th birthday um 
and then so now it was it was tangible we were a band and because we had a guitar you know <laughs> so he looked three chords and that was it uh we were away um but then he went to get some strings in a shop called sutton's um in the city what was the street just down from gerald can't remember the name of that street um and he came out and he said i've got a double bass in there you should come and see it so a whole crowd of us steamed into there you know one saturday lunchtime <laughs> and uh, there was this double bass and i picked it up and i played it in a very rudimentary fashion but i was playing it uh, and it was almost like uh, an out-of-body experience you know it was a real epiphany where i was like yes this is it found it um and i had been working but i'd been made redundant you know so the thatcher days where all the kids lost their jobs you know yes and um i had 60 pounds the double bass was 180 uh and i was in there every day for a couple of weeks saying Look, you've got to let me have it you know i'm in a band we need it and they let me take it <laughs> I, I gave them 60 pounds uh Thorny's dad lent me 60 pounds and they let me pay the remaining 60 as i got it so every uh, i'd get my doll check and i'd be in there and i'd give most of the money Excellent. I was selling, selling records, selling clothes, which were the only things I had. I sold, you know, while I'd been working, I'd, I'd built up a, a reasonable record collection, which I basically sold to pay off the um, remaining £60. Yeah. Because it was because during that period, to, you know, there was this kind of, I don't know, 79 Thatcher gets in, and then, you know, the 80s hits with, you know, we had the Falkland War, we had the Miners' Strike, we had Greenham Common. A few years later, there was other yeah. you know, Red Wedge. Actually, that's much later, isn't it? And the, and the Battle yeah. of the Beanfield. But I suppose there was a, a lot of bands I've interviewed from the 80s, this kind of period of unemployment and job seekers allowance and the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, where you could, as long as that's you had a thousand pounds in the account, how do you get a thousand pounds? Best not <laughs> um, You then have this kind of year of being a self employed anything. But you, yeah, just, yeah, you didn't have to have the restart interview, which is so good. So yeah, so were you from from sort of your your glamorous job that you got made redundant? Were you on the? Yeah. You, did you sort of? Yeah, you just said you you were unemployed. Did you do the job seekers allowance or the enterprise allowance scheme? Oh, it was just doll money in those days. Just a doll. There you go. They, they'd call you in every so often. You didn't say you were a musician because they just give you hassle. No. Uh, I mean, we didn't make money from gigs anyway. You know, when we first started, we'd got the instruments, but we didn't have any amplifiers. So we used to hire them from Norwich Sound Systems. We'd do a gig, pay off for the amps, and, you know, there might be a couple of beers in it. Not that we were doing it for money, really. Um, but, you know, I, I remember we did one gig in, in Yarmouth, and we made £7.50 each, and I thought this was great. So I bought a new album and a stylus for my record player. <laughs> and that was it. Money gone. <laughs> Excellent. I know. That's those heady days, aren't they? Really exciting. So did the band form then? Was it, set at, you know, sort of 80, 81, 82? Yeah, I got, got my, well, we got instruments in 81. Um, we tried immediately to be a trio with our singer who would uh, hold a microphone in one hand and play a snare with the other, <laughs> just to give it a beat. But we, to be honest, we couldn't really play. <laughs> we were trying to replicate records and, and we just couldn't really do it. So 
essentially we went away then and learned to play. I learned to play by, I, I couldn't afford lessons. So I learned to play by putting records on and just playing along to them. Yeah. You know, I had a, had a good ear so I could do that. And then, so we formed properly at the beginning of 82. We had another friend in who by this time had got a drum kit. So we were then a four piece. Uh, and then we got our friend Mustard, who was a punk guitarist, uh, in later because we thought that would give it a bit of an edge, you know. Yes. So we had two guitars, double bass, drums, vocal. And the and, sound is made. It's there. And Yeah, yeah. That's a great name as well, isn't it? Fireball XL5. Yeah, it was just after the, you know, the Jerry Anderson thing. I used to love that when I was a kid. So, um, and you know, we needed a name and we didn't want the name with cats in it, you know. No, or that Dactari. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be like uh, the other bands. So we wanted to have something that was a bit different. And we thought, yeah, you know, that, that sounds good. And there's five of us, so it makes sense. Yeah, and did... um. And did it all sort of come together quite smoothly? Did you start to sort of get a good sound together? It did, yeah. I mean, we, we started and we practised for six months and then did a gig. What, what, what we found is it's a bit like the Ramones, really, where, you know, the Ramones would try and play things that they knew but couldn't play them, so wrote their own stuff. That's exactly what happened with us, where we, we, try, we try and make Eddie Cochran's song. It would go wrong. But we, it, we'd end up with a song at the end of it. Yes, God, I know. So, they could have taken you to court, couldn't they, like the Ed Sheeran case, but probably thought there's not much money. Fortunately, <laughs> they, they, not, they weren't so plagiaristic because, because of our lack of ability, you know. We could never totally replicate things. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of these indie bands from the 80s had a similar thing where they, they well, I wasn't really a guitarist, so we just made a sound. And um, that was the sound, but we couldn't cover that, you know, couldn't cover anybody else's material because we weren't good enough, you know. So there's big, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know, Big Flame, I remember, Bogshed and um, Stump. I think they just had to sort of create their own sound because of musical kind of enthusiasm and keenness as well as kind of inability to really understand what they're doing. But it yeah, worked. Absolutely. It was fine. Yeah. And during that time, I mean, you know, it was interesting because there was, there were, you know, in the Norwich scene, there was the Farmers Boys, the Higsons, Serious Drinking, and um, another band from the UEA who were sort of a bit more of an electronic band who I can't now remember what their name was. But anyway, so did you, did you sort of start sort of creating a bit of a scene around the band? Did you start having fans? We did, yeah. We had very enthusiastic fans. Um, you know, we used to play places like the Jackard Gala, um, anywhere we could really, <laughs> but uh, the, we played those places quite a bit. Um, yeah, we, there, there was loads of people. <clears throat> uh, there was a lot of people. I mean, we had punks and 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 the rockabillies who weren't purists. You know, the the, the rockabillies scene kind of divided into the the purists who were incredibly authentic and wouldn't like things like the stray cats and the cramps, um, more modern things, um, and certainly wouldn't have liked anything that that wasn't rock and roll related. You know. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't have liked Susie and the Banshees or anything like that, Adam and the Ants, or the Specials or something like that, you know. Whereas more progressive people were were into lots of different music, you know. Yeah, and how did um because the psychobilly thing started to sort of get get very kind of 
I, I didn't really, yeah, I did slightly when doing this. I didn't realize there were quite so many different scenes in the 80s. I should have done because I was, you know, that was my, I suppose, formative years and decade. But I was kind of went straight into the world of indie as well as, I don't know, anything John Peel played, I tried to. Yeah, enjoy. yeah. But it was, there was kind of like quite a scene with the, the meteors and. That's right, yeah. And like I said, the rock cats, but they never really. And yeah, the stray cats were the ones who really broke it big, wasn't it? So um, yeah, yeah, they, they're the ones. So did you sort of veer towards that kind of more psychobilly scene? Uh, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I really liked the stray cats. You know, I saw them on their first tour when they uh, played UEA, although they weren't really a psychobilly band. Um, I loved the Cramps, who you know were. Just, just amazing, and you know, that mix of the whole garage punk thing and the rockabilly thing, and just everything that they they listened to, that they kind of made their own sound with, you know. So yeah, th those were probably my favourite modern bands at the time. Yes. And so, yeah, we we, we developed our own sound, and and we we weren't strictly a psychobilly band, but we did. As I say, because we couldn't really do the old stuff, we did our own stuff. Although eventually we did throw some covers into the set, but we did them in our own style, you know, rather than trying to replicate them and be authentic. We had had our own authenticity, you know. Yes. And was the first time in the studio, was this recording the EP, Rocking Shoes? Yes, it was. What, terrible. Was, your, what was your memory? <laughs> and who is, and his, who is Northwood's Records? Northwood Records was a small label um, set up by a guy called Ray French. I mean, it was, he, he lived in, where was it, Barkingside, East London, out of East London, suburban. Um, I can't remember how it came about now. I know that um, Bax Records wanted to sign us and, you know, uh, we had meetings with them and they wanted to do an album with us. I mean, Possibly we should, it would have been better if we'd gone with Bax, really, to be honest. Yeah. Kept it local, I think it would have been better. But, you know, we thought, oh, yeah, they're going to get us gigs in London and, uh, you know, they've got connections in London, that'll be better for us. But, I mean, really, that was kind of, it sowed the seeds for our demise, to be honest with you. But we oh, didn't know it at the time. But you were produced by the famous Boz Bora. That's how did, right. <laughs> how did this come about? Because obviously... You know, he was part of a lot of scenes, wasn't he? Yeah, and, yeah. And he's come, yes. gone on to be such a famous character. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, he he knew Ray French and Ray French and brought him in. Really, I mean, obviously, we knew the Polcats from from seeing them at gigs and stuff. Um, so that was the first thing he he produced, and uh, you know the first proper recording we'd done i mean we, we had done some very dodgy four track demos that sounded terrible you know on those little fostex machines <laughs> <laughs> yes this is all true because because having done this show for quite a long time um you know there is a kind of a five-year narrative with most bands isn't there the, the kind of 12-month honeymoon period hopefully and yeah. then the, you know, the single is kind of played by John Peel who get, gets the session I know this is very romantic but yeah. it really was the way and then you got the first album things going really well and then the second possibly third album that's when people are starting to get a bit frail around the edges and you yeah. know five years is generally it but you know they, but the other good thing with this you know the UK in that way is that um there, there were the kind of I suppose the gatekeepers, you know, there was, 
you know, like John Peel, there was three weekly music papers plus the record mirror. Then there was, yeah, yeah. and every city and town had a, you know, an alternative night, probably on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. So you could sort of get in a transit van and at least feel like you're on tour, which was quite yeah, good. So did yeah, you, yeah. did the band sort of pick up quite a, a sort of bit of momentum after the single came out? No, not really. <laughs> we, we still played in Norwich to begin with. Um, it came out in I think November '83. Then in, into '84, we did some more recording. Um, by the end of '84, I'd left uh, because we we started to get gigs in in London. So we you know we were doing the old back of the transit van stuff, um, and some of the guys in the band didn't want to do that. Um, they were happy playing in Norwich, which is great. But I wanted to, I wanted to see other places, you know, I wanted to, and I knew that I, we couldn't have a, have a career just playing in Norwich once a fortnight, uh, mm. that it, eventually it was going to end anyway. Um, and I, I was desperate for us to, I mean, people wanted us to play places. Uh, and then after we started doing that, it, it was sort of, no, nah, I don't want to do this. Oh, I want to sleep in my own bed and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but we had a, had a bit of a moany singer, Mark. You know, he liked being at home, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes. um, <laughs> wonder, actually, yeah, because because I suppose there is that kind of the, the wonders of youth means that often people don't mind doing the you know gigging, getting back at four in the morning with the gear and um, yeah, lugging it about. Good. But normally, you know, that's after five years and still feeling kind of poverty stricken. So yeah, and yeah, the idea yeah. of playing around the the country is often quite exciting. So. Um, God, that was that. Did you ever? I mean, this is a, this is really quite a random question. Did you ever make a did a, did the band have a big thing about image and get filmed, getting made up? Because I seem to remember I I went on a film course in Norwich. I mean, in the eighties, and someone said, "Oh, there's this little clip I did with this band," and sort of watched them. They spent a lot of time, sort of, I don't know, basically doing their hair. Were you one of those bands who were obsessed with the image more than the music? Um. Oh, have I got that completely wrong, by the way? That 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 wasn't us. We, wasn't I mean, we, we were very obsessive about music, but we, I mean, we also had an image as well. But but that was just how we dressed. We'd been like that since we were teenagers, you know. Well, we still were teenagers, really. I think I was twenty-one when when I left the band. Um, so it started when we were teenagers, you know. Yeah. Um, so you then had your? Did you have a Ziggy Stardust moment? Was it on stage or was it just? <laughs> it was almost that. Um, what happened was, as I said, we, we, we'd been out of Norwich doing gigs and, and roughing it, you know, sleeping where we could kind of thing. Um, and I thought this was great because we're, we're meeting different people, uh, you know, and there's the whole world out there. Uh, and so I, I absolutely loved it. And, um, but as I say, not everyone did. And so when we got back, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, don't want to do that again. And we had some some good gigs coming up, um, like the Electric Ballroom uh, and some other places in, in London, you know. And I thought, yes, it's going to be great. Um, and uh, we, we never did them. I really wanted to do them. But what happened was our, our last gig was in London, actually, in Hammersmith at the Clarendon. Um, the downstairs, uh, nice. Lonsing's gone now. Um, 
Um, what happened was, uh, as you probably know, I joined a band called The Stingrays, uh, which was, you know, brought me to London. Um, I, I'd seen The Stingrays, they, they'd become one of my favourite bands. So I, I was coming down to London to see them and, and bands like The Vibe. So I was getting into the, the garage scene, you know, there was a lot of things happening there and it seemed very exciting. You know, some of the people had been in the rockabilly scene and were looking for for new ways to express themselves mm. um, so there was all this you know all this a new new strand a new scene happening and i thought it was very exciting um so i got to know uh, lloyd the bass player and the vibes and he said stingrays are still looking for a bass player because they, they'd had uh, deafening guys the original bass player keith had left um so I, I phoned up Alec from Stingray and said, look, if you still need a bass player, I'm up for joining because, you know, my band isn't really going to get to where I want to go. Um, so I met them, I played with them uh, and they said, right, yeah, you're in. So I said, well, I'll do these last gigs with my band and then I'll, I'll join you afterwards. But then, of course, I mentioned it to a friend of mine in confidence who mentioned it to his girlfriend who happened to mention it to her friend who was the singer's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and then so the last gig we did no one was speaking to any anybody else oh, no. No, i was at, i was at one end of the bar and everybody was at the other end of the bar oh, so we, we did this gig it was sort of you know real angry and we played everything really fast <laughs> we, we played fast anyway but it was even faster <laughs> oh, god it sounds like uh, something yeah Tricky, isn't it? I remember hearing a story about the Eagles when they sort of split up for their kind of one of their major moments. And I think they were already having a bit of a verbal fight, like, you know, when we finish this last number, I'm going to get you. And he literally threw the guitar down and just ran because the rest of the band went after him. And he just you know, <laughs> literally was doing his best 100 metre sprint. To, you know, but it sounded yeah, quite extraordinary. Yeah. I don't know what it would be like in the audience going, I think they're sort of threatening each other. Yeah, that, that would strange. be quite strange, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I did my last gig with Fable XL Five at the at the Clarendon, uh, and then a week later I did my first gig with the Stingrays in the same venue. So Co just briefly, then was that the end of Fireball XL Five? Uh, no, it wasn't. They they continued. Uh, Thorny, the, the guitarist, left because he thought with without me in it, there was there was probably not much point. Um, so they did continue, and then mustered the other guitarist. He left. Um, and they got some other people there, and I think they continued for a, a couple of years, I think. Yeah. Um, you know. And there was a compilation that came out, wasn't there? The Complete Works. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'd started recording the album, see, but we only did four songs. <laughs> and then, we, we, uh, then I left, so that, that all fell apart, unfortunately. Oh, what a shame. Um, Yes, yeah, I mean, Cherry Red Records is never going to bother with a big kind of retrospective, are they? No, there's there's no box set, I'm afraid. <laughs> there's no box set with 30, 32 page booklet about the band with lots yeah, of yeah, stories. Yeah. So I, I, yes, sorry. No, I'd, I'd I'd have loved to have done the album, but you know, there you go. So was that the last time you kind of spoke to the band and and ever knew them from that that moment? Uh, I, I know them now. Yeah, yeah, we're all friends. And they oh, that's that, a nice. I like a happy story. Or a happy... Yeah, yeah. No, after after a time, they realised that you know he was right. Um, but of course, it was too late. You know, it's strange because <laughs> most Norwich bands used to say, "Ah, oh, we didn't make it because we weren't in London." 
which was a kind of simplified thing to say, because sometimes you thought, actually, I don't think you made it because you're not that good. But they often yeah. had that excuse. So London was often, especially in the 80s, yeah. I seem to remember there was this big thing. There was a few Norwich bands who I won't mention, but they were like, oh, we would have made it if we were in London. It's like, yeah, yeah. You had to go to London. That's the thing. Yes. You had to be here, you know. If you, if you really were serious about being a musician <clears> at that time, you know, I mean, particularly if you were in Norwich, and maybe if you were in Manchester or Liverpool or something. But you know, even the Beatles came to London, didn't they? You know, yes, the, and eventually where everything was. That does happen. Uh, so the Stingrays—they were quite moving and shaking. I think I've done an interview with a member who's. Did he become quite a big shot in a in a record label or for a record label in? Oh, man lives Alec. in California. Yeah, yeah, Alec. Yeah. Oh, I have done. <laughs> yeah, I've worked with him. We've interviewed him. Yes, right. what a charming. So yeah, so how will how, just you know because it's kind of curious because I have seen your CV and you do work with one of my favourite people, even though it's a bit tricky. We will we'll get onto that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tricky relation because I suppose I was that indie kid from eighty three to eighty seven. It was like oh my god, the Smiths they were everything. Yes. You know, I loved all the other stuff that was going on from the Bundy Boys to Public Enemy to yes, I don't know. You know, just it was the go betweens, the chills, you know, just yeah, it was just yeah. fantastic. You know, it was just a great time. And, you know, there was a lot of music. There was a lot of music. And it was, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that I've listened to recently that I missed the first time back then, which I think, oh, this is great. But then obviously it was harder to get hold of music then. You couldn't just stream it. You had to rely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You had to research things, really. But, yeah, but and, and, that, and that was often a disaster because I did buy one or two albums of the week or singles of the week from the NME and thought this is dreadful this is yeah, dreadful. yeah. obviously the journalists had taken drugs with one of the members of the band and <laughs> gave him a great write-up or slept of with course him. yeah it was all very tacky wasn't it <clears throat> yes it was yeah <clears throat> so yes your time in the stingray so this this obviously was kind of they were the kind of the latter part of the 80s weren't they yeah well they started around the same time as five Alexa five actually um in 82 and we disbanded in 87 so it's more mid really um mid 80s uh yeah it was it, being in the stingrays was was fantastic i absolutely loved it um it, you know and i'd, I'd learned lot alec and bal were heavily into lots of different kinds of musics so i you know i got a lot of stuff from them which was just great. They, you know, they both had huge record collections. I think they were competing with each other to see who had more records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got the impression from Alex that he was, um, yes, that was his kind of obsession. Alec is, is, is like a librarian. I mean, I haven't seen him for a, well, a while, obviously, with the COVID thing and everything. I usually see him when he comes over. But I, when I was in America, I went to his place and it was just more records than a shop, you know? Yeah, I think he's an archivist, isn't he, for the record He label? is, yeah, yeah. He does various labels. He does Ace Records, Cherry Red, uh, not Cherry Red, um, Rhino. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just... Which is, yeah, huge, really. And uh, so what was the life, what was, I mean, the lifespan of the, the Stingrays? It kind of went into the late 80s. Yeah, it, 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 the, the lifespan was 82 to 87, and I joined at the end of 84. Um, so I, I, I was the permanent bass player in the band, 
which was you great. You managed to record an album with them. I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was sort of towards the end, unfortunately. The, the record company went bust, actually. <laughs> it was it was, it was classic um, thing where band records album, label goes bust. Um, there's there's no money for promotion or a, a, anything, you know. And then the band just thought, yeah. Uh, was that big? Point? Was that big beat records or Kaleidoscope? Uh, Kaleidoscope, yeah. We we'd done singles for Big Beat, which was obviously Ace Records. Yes. Uh, Yes, this is true. So then what happens to you then before your, your moment in the 90s? Because I suppose 87 was the kind of the great year where the Smiths break up, heaven forbid. Yeah. And then Ecstasy came along and then we had that dance scene with, you know, the Manchester sound with the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons. And then the grunge scene from Seattle started to appear as well. So what was, what was your sort of musical direction in the wilderness period? Uh, oh, well, it was, it was a wilderness for me personally, really. Um... After the Stingrays disbanded, because that, you know, that had been brilliant. We toured with the Cramps and everything, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, um, you know, we were quite big, particularly in Germany and Holland. We used to tour there a lot. But we, we reached the point where we thought we can't really go any further and it's not, not really happening in England, you know, and, and scenes kind of fade don't they people move on into other things and by this time we're all 24 you know and so you're looking ancient. to do different agent i know you know but you start sort of thinking about different things musically um, and also i think there's a sort of new wave of 16 to 18 year olds come come you know i mean i know they come course, every, yeah. every year but every yeah. kind of that cycle of about five years is where there's like people have kind of started to focus on some other things yeah, hopefully yeah. and the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds sort of want their band and they don't really want someone who's been around the block a few times and got jaded yeah, with each other mid-20s <laughs> um, old people yeah yeah so at that time I, I i tried to form another band um and trying to get the right people was just really a, a a pain in the bum you know I, I, really I was trying to get a band that had the same dynamic as the Stingrays with, with uh, you know the, the same level of enthusiasm and you know we were we were all for one and one for all you know and we moved as one we had this collective energy whether we were playing or not you know yes. uh, and I just couldn't do that and uh, so there was a couple of years really in the wilderness uh, of trying to find find myself, I guess, post bands, because I really wanted to continue playing. So I decided to take a little time out and just begin to practice more methodically. Um, and I was, you know, I'd sit there and think, how can I do this? I can't really get a band that I'm happy with. And there doesn't really seem to be a band that I really, really want to join. I'm, I'm not totally sure how to be a musician without a band. Um, and then I thought, wait a minute, there's all these old guys I like on these old records that used to play bass here and they'd play bass there. You know, people like Danny Thompson, who was a big influence on me, played with, you know, John Martin, had been in Pentangle, and was just it? played with everybody. And Kate Bush? Yeah, Kate Bush, yeah, just loads of people. And mm. I thought, maybe I could be one of those guys, you know? And I, I thought, I'm a session guy, maybe that sounds a bit ponzi. And then I discovered the term freelance. <laughs> and it was kind of, it was a revelation. I could be a freelance musician. 
And then I thought, you know, how do you go about being a freelance musician? Um, and so I was practicing and, and, and checking out different things and absorbing different influences, getting into jazz and things like that. Uh, and then uh, in 1990, I got my first session which was a morrissey session is this pregnant for the last time it is yeah right it is indeed <laughs> was that um produced by stephen street no no it was post stephen street it was uh, clive langer and oh. alan Winstanley. it was just at the end of the kill uncle sessions oh got so after that album Yes. Uh, Morrissey was wanting to do something that was a bit rockabilly, but didn't sound like a rockabilly band. Yeah, because I've done an interview with Alan, Alan White, and it, was oh, like, right, okay. and it was a bit like, how did you become Morrissey's band? And it was a bit like, he liked the look of us. I was like, oh, fair enough. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, it was like, oh, he just well, wants a band Alan, to be photographed with. And then it was like... Alan, uh, Alan had a trio, and basically that, that be, became the your arsenal band pretty much yes. added what, what happened how, how we came to do the session stuff Clive Langer obviously had, had been producer for Madness um, he spoke to uh, Carl out of Madness and said do you know any guys that have played rockabilly we need you know this sound and we're, we're going to do this he knew Boz so he said to Boz can you bring a couple of guys in do you know a double bass player and because I'd known Bars from working with him in, in 5LXL5 and stuff, uh, he said, do you want to come and do this session? Um, so we, we all turned up and, and, and played. Mark Nevin was writing with Morrissey at the time uh, and had a few songs. And the first one we worked on was, was Pregnant for the last time. Yes, which was quite good. So, um, so your Arsenal, was that, did that come out in 92? It did, yeah. But did you play on the album? I didn't, know. no. Uh, uh, Morrissey took Alan's band, basically, uh, yes. because he liked the look of them. Uh, Mark Nevin was going to be the guitarist because he was writing the songs. Yes. Um, but then they kind of didn't totally get along because uh, I worked with, with Mark subsequently a few years ago. Uh, and we swap stories as you do. Um, and he had he had some commitments with Kirsty McCall, who he was also working with, and he was really good friends with. Uh, and he wanted to, you know, honour those commitments. And Morrissey basically wanted him exclusively to do what he wanted to do. And Mark said, "Sorry, I can't do it." Yes. So, so he didn't. <laughs> he didn't do it. But you play on one of the great songs of all time, don't you? The more you Ignore, ignore me, the, me. I closer I, get. Yeah, yeah. What was your memory Cork, of that session? Baseline. Well, that, that was the Vauxhall and I sessions. Yes. Um, so obviously I, I, I'd i done a bit of a Morris's session. Then uh, during 92, I did, it was a bad year for me. I had uh, I'd become a father. I had a daughter in the hospital for months. Um, I had twin daughters. I lost one. Uh, so we, we spent 92 just was a non-musical year, it was just a disaster. Um, but while I was doing that, I was also learning to read music while I wasn't in hospital. Um, and then, uh, so effectively in 93, I, I started again, pretty much from scratch, joined a folk pop band in South London. Um, but then Morrissey wasn't happy with Gary and Spencer for the, 
the stuff they wanted to do for Vauxhall and I. So I then get a call, can you come and do this album? And I said, yeah, of course I can. So I left the band I was in. <laughs> um, and we all went out to Hookend Manor where we'd done Pregnant for the last time and, and basically lived there for three months creating Vauxhall and I. So actually, The More You Ignore Me was one of the first tracks we worked on. Which is um, a classic, isn't it? Just it is a great track. Yeah, it really is. It is. Um, and actually, it's one of the best albums he did because it, you know, there was, I, remembering it chronologically is going to be a bit tricky, so I'm not going to try. But it was one of the ones that had, you know, it finishes with this classic song called Speedway, doesn't it? That's right, yeah. What was it your, can, what, were the, what was the atmosphere like? Because you had Steve Lillywhite. That's right. Yeah. Produce him. And you obviously yeah. had Alan White, who's just the nicest man in the world. God, I hope you didn't fall out with him because I really like Alan. No, no, I like Alan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, is that? Um, no, Alan's um, great. Yes, God, it would be it would be hard to fall out with him when he, I only met him once. But um, yeah, so so what was that kind of session? Was it a good time? You know, because that's one of it, his classic albums, isn't it? It was an incredibly good time. I mean, it was a beautiful summer. We're in this beautiful studio. Um, previously, had belonged to Dave Gilmore. He bought it from uh, Alvin Lee, who was in Ten Years After. So it's, it's just kind of steeped in this history, you know. And loads of records have been recorded there, um, and it was just incredibly beautiful. Um, and it, it was just great. We got there, and it was like we didn't really know exactly what we were going to do. The, the only brief, uh, Morris has said to Steve Lillywhite. I don't want it to be an indie album. And, and that was pretty much the framework. Uh, some of the songs we had on demos before we went, we didn't even, didn't even start. It, 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 the, the album evolved. I'd say there was probably maybe five or six songs that we thought we were going to record that we did actually record. And then other songs happened during the sessions. Uh, some of the songs we did, we, we'd do a version of and then scrap it and then do a completely different version of it. Yes. Who was the music who was your musical director? Because in the early years it was Stephen Street and then you know uh, well, Billy my... Riley was on one of his albums as well. And yeah. Also, I mean um, um Bronson was a lot to do with your arsenal. So who was the kind of person pulling it all together? I, I suppose Steve did that. I mean he would suggest things. I mean how we would record is we we'd be essentially playing live in the studio and we'd start routining tracks to get the arrangement. Uh, you know, Morrissey would come in and listen and say whether it was the right direction or, or it needed to be a bit more this or a bit more that. It's all very oblique with Morrissey because he doesn't really speak the musical language. So, you know, it, it's, you have to kind of, you find a way of understanding what he's saying, you know, and, when, and also when you work with him, it's completely instrumental. So you record the songs. When the songs are pretty much recorded, he comes in and puts his vocal on. So you've got no idea which, what, this, this was confusing early on. We're thinking, is this bit the chorus or is this bit the verse, you know? And <laughs> he would do something afterwards and you think, oh, I thought that was the verse and that's the chorus. So, yeah. So you, you learned to kind of not, um, you know, if it's instrumental, but the, I mean, the thing as a bass player is that the bass player will always throw in 
you know, you get, uh, you put in something between vocal lines, you know, like a little fill, a little riff or something. Because, you, you, you know, it's called dropping them in the pocket. So where the, the singer isn't singing, you put them in there, it just adds a little yes. touch that's quite nice. But sometimes, you know, you think, which bit is he going to sing here? Because <laughs> Morrissey would not sing things, or in places that you were convinced a singer would be singing. You know? God, that's such a strange way of doing it, isn't it? I would have thought yeah. it almost wouldn't ever work, but it obviously does on this particular did, album. Yes, it did work that way, yeah, because he would hear things, uh, you know, the things that were demoed, he'd write to the demo, but then the, the right. things that were being written, he would. Uh, happening in the studio, he would he he'd know what he was going going to do already. It would be in his head, um, but it's just that nobody else was in his head, you know, so you wouldn't know. No. So it it was very interesting from that point of view to do things, um, you know, because you I, have. I, mean, I was going to say, when you finished um, and then heard the final album, it must have been a bit of a surprise. Thinking, mm, that's quite different. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it made sense, obviously. <laughs> um, nothing, I was, I'm often surprised if I listen to stuff. I think, wow, that bass line really fits with the vocal. But in theory, it kind of almost shouldn't because I didn't know where the vocal was. Yes. And I don't know if he ever made a slight amendment. I'm sure he most probably didn't. I'm, I'm sure he had his melodies already and knew what he was going to do and knew the words and, and everything. So he kind of worked um, on the demo to sort of, and then had the kind of the vague idea of the song and then just kind of would fit it on and then it got... Yeah, he, he would do that, but some of the songs on Vauxhall and I were never demoed oh. because they were written in the studio. So the the only recording is is what you hear on the album you know there is no earlier version so a track like speedway which has this kind of great sort of climax that it builds and builds isn't it i mean what was that process like that process was was really interesting um there is a, an earlier version of speedway that isn't as good um, we scrapped it i think we 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 changed the key. I mean, it's not so dissimilar, but what what happened was we we this was a, a very inspired idea by Steve Lillywhite. We we started recording it, and Steve had this idea that at Hook End Manor there was this beautiful sort of oak panelled dining room where we used to eat in the evenings. You know, long table and all that, very like you see in old films. A really lovely room, um, and he said. For the second half of the drum, uh, second half of the song, we need to record the drums in the dining room for the, the natural reverb, you know. Mm. Um, but of course, we had to send off for loads of cables to reach from the the barn where the studio was in through the house, you know, through the garden, in through the house, into the dining room. So we we spent the first half of the day recording the first half of the song. <laughs> And then we'd have lunch, then we waited for all these cables. Then the cables all came, and then Woody set up his drums in the dining room and all the mics and the cables and everything. Then we did the second half of the song with the big drum sound. Yeah. We could have just added reverb on the desk, but you know, <laughs> it, it was epic. So it was very, it was an epic one, wasn't it? It's was like, I suppose yeah. it's what Tony Visconti's talking about recording. 
is it the low album or heroes in in oh, it's heroes you know, wasn't it with the microphones yeah you know in the all, all set at different levels and and opening those up as it went through the verses yeah the that's gate. fascinating yeah it's an amazing story actually so with so with that tour did you or not that tour with that album then the tour did you ever tour with morrissey i did yeah yeah we just, weirdly we didn't tour vox on and i for some reason i don't really know why um it was just its own entity really the album it's a classic um, amazing. it is a classic uh, I, I don't think there's anything quite like it by anyone else or uh, anything quite like it by Morrissey yes. um, so yeah basically nothing happened after that for several months and then um, I get a call and we, we toured well actually no uh, yeah there was 84 wasn't it uh, 94 sorry right decade 94 he had his court case with you know the Smith's court case with oh. Mike Joyce so we were due to do some stuff and then we didn't do some stuff, and then we were going to do some stuff, then we didn't do some stuff. Then eventually we, we did four tracks. We did uh, the Boxers single and, and Sonny, we did those four tracks with the same lineup as Foxhall and I, so Woody Taylor on drums. Um, in the October at Olympic Studios, and then nothing happened. <laughs> uh, well, the, you know, all the wranglings were still going on. And mm. then in February, 95 we toured was that the kill deal uh, it was it it was known as the boxers tour but actually it was called the in-person tour that's what it says on on the posters but because the boxers single came out um it was just known as the boxers tour they also had a picture of a boxer on the poster like the single yes it was strange because it must have been in the 90s. I, I saw Morris at the UEA in Norwich, but I... That was later. Yeah, that time. was later. And I do remember someone saying, oh, you can go backstage. And I went, oh, that's amazing. But Morris had gone. And I sat next yeah. to Gary, Gary Day. He was a bit... Yeah, yeah. And I thought, actually, this is a bit embarrassing. And I quickly left in a slightly sort of self-conscious way, thinking, oh, this isn't very showbiz. It's all a bit weird. <laughs> It's weird, isn't it? Because you think it's going to be really fun and it's not. It's horrible. But one of the great singles of our time from the mid 90s in the Britpop period of John Major was the, the uh, track, The Bo uh, Boy Racer. Why oh, do you think that's great? I do love that. Great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Did you? I suppose it was the lyric, you know, he thinks he's got the whole world standing in UI. In his hand, yeah. yeah, in his yeah, hand. yeah. I don't know. It was probably, and I do remember seeing him perform it on Jules Holland. It was at that That's time right. where Morrissey had slightly been disappearing a bit, and there was a few kind of like stuff which wasn't so exciting by that period as well. And it seemed to be a bit dramatic and a bit exciting. I mean, you might have found it a bit, as a musician, a bit basic, but I don't know. It had a bit of energy to it, you know. It did have energy, yeah. We were on later and Pulp were on, and of course, Pulp Common People was, was massive at that time. So it was kind of almost, you know, I don't want to say second fiddle, but, you know, I think slightly eclipsed by Jarvis Cocker at that time. Yes, he was the man. He did the Glastonbury moment, didn't he? And then suddenly Paul yeah. everyone has, well, not everyone, but some people, if they're lucky enough, have that moment, don't they? And um, yeah, so what happens? I mean, is that the last time you worked with it, it, Morrissey? And no, no, I did another album and a big, tour in America and everything. Um, 95 was an interesting year, uh, really. We, we, we did the tour, then we went straight into the studio. 
um, and did Southpaw Grammar, which um, Boy Racer was on, and Dagenham Dave, which not a great lyric, but I didn't think, but it was a really good single. Uh, real corking single. Um, and uh, there was a slightly experimental album, I think, for Morrissey with longer songs on it. You know, The Teachers Are Afraid of the Pupils, which is uh, 11 minutes. I think it was almost a bit prog, you know? Yeah. <laughs> almost. Um, and uh, later that year, we toured with David Bowie. Oh, my God, you were with the Bowie moment. Yes, the Bowie so moment. So what was that, in, you know, what was was that experience like? Because cause this is where... Stephen's beginning to get a bit erratic, isn't he? And he gets a bit upset. I mean, I'm not surprised after the court case, which was kind of, you know. Yeah. But, but then, you know, he seemed to get very upset with David. And every time he ever mentions Mr. Bowie, he's always, it's like, oh, you know, he doesn't let it go. Well, yeah, right. Okay, so uh, Southport Grammar came out on RCA. I believe somebody at RCA said, you know, I've got this great idea. Bowie's touring. Morrissey should be his guest. Uh, and of course, I'm sure Morrissey thought that was a great idea. Um, so we, you know, we start off with four nights at, at Wembley Arena, which uh, was incredibly exciting. You know, um, I think the second night we went into our dressing room before we played, and David Bowie is sitting on the sofa. He's come in to meet us, you know, and he goes, "Hi, I'm David." You know, yeah, I'm I'm Johnny. How are you? <laughs> and you're thinking. I used to take your records off the radio. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, when they used to take Top of the Pops back in the, in the Slade days. Um, and uh, he was really nice. He was really nice. Uh, and the band were really nice. You know, it, it was a totally cool thing to do. Um, we, we, we did the Wembley shows. Um, I mean, there was this perceived thing. I mean, I don't know. I didn't really see it myself that the idea that was a Morrissey audience and then they went out and then there was a Bowie audience. I didn't see it because I played and then I was at the side and you can't really see because it's dark anyway. Mm. Um, it, it seemed okay to me from from you know, where I was viewing it, you know. Um, so anyway, we did some more gigs. You know, we did Birmingham. I can't remember everywhere else we played, but we ended up in Scotland and we were in Aberdeen. And Alan and I went out for a little walk and we, we were in the HMV in Aberdeen and, and some fans met us and said, oh, you know, we're, we've come up from Birmingham for the gig. The last time I came up to Scotland to see Morrissey, he cancelled. <laughs> we said, no, no, no worries there. We've sound checked. We're all ready. We're going to be on, a, you know, whatever time it was. I felt so bad for them. I really did. Um, I said, yeah, we'll see you later, blah, blah, blah. We, you know, we go back to the gig. We get changed. You know, we were, we're all wearing suits on that tour. We we're all suited, we're booted, instruments on stage, everything. 20 minutes before we're due on stage, the tour manager comes up to us and said, we need an emergency meeting. And I thought, oh, dear, something's gone awry. So Morrissey has left and he's taken the tour bus. <laughs> I was oh. like, right, okay, and we're in Aberdeen. <laughs> we couldn't really be much further away from home at this point and still be in the UK. Um, I mean, it's quite comical, uh, you know. And uh, uh, and that was it. That was the end of that tour. And we were like, oh, 
okay. He said, don't worry, you'll all be paid and we'll fly you home in the morning. <laughs> uh, but you, the, the thing is, you're in the mental space that you're about to go and play. So you're like, ah, now how, what am I going to do? <laughs> I remember walking around and, you know, it was all, all backstage. I remember going up to uh, uh, this lady, one of Bowie's caterers, and she was really nice. I said, we're off. We're not doing it. It's gone. And she reached in a, in a cooler and handed me a bottle of tequila and said, you'll need this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we did go back and we, we, we all got drunk in Morris's suite in the hotel. <laughs> oh, my God. And then that was it. <laughs> And that was it. And oh, then a few days later, we were in Japan. With Morrissey? <laughs> With Morrissey. He'd made a mirac miraculous recovery from oh, that's good. his illness. His illness. Uh, but there was, yes. But there was, you know, there was, I remember seeing in the NME where uh, Bowie's people weren't happy and saying, we can't get hold of Morrissey. His, his mum won't let him come to the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all getting a bit like, um, you know, Monty Python here. <laughs> He's not the Messiah. He's an Aussie boy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I can't say. Then you off to Japan. Did you just all just awkwardly just skirt around the subject of what happened that night? No, it wasn't mentioned. It wasn't mentioned. <laughs> it, no, I don't. It was just like that didn't happen. But at, at the time, we were we were due to then go out with Bowie after Christmas. We had three months all around Europe. Um, and uh, before that, we were supposed to do some recording with Joe Strummer producing. Joe had been to one of the Wembley shows. I had this surreal moment uh, with, with Joe Strummer where he came up to me and, and was telling me very enthusiastically what a great bass player I was and what a great sound I had. Uh, and I'm thinking, are you still there? Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is Joe Strummer. He's telling me I'm great. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I was thinking, fucking hell. Yeah. And, and Joe was really cool and he was terribly nice, you know. Um, but, you know, we, we were due to go into the studio on January the 2nd and then there was these gigs, which I believe were still on at the time. And on January the 1st, so this is six months' work, uh, you know, for a musician. January the 1st, I get a phone call. It's all off. And it's like, ah, damn, I'm, I'm, I'm unemployed. <laughs> and it's only January the 1st. Um, and we didn't do any work that year at all. Nothing happened in 1996. Morrison uh, sort of disappeared. Yeah. Uh, Did the Japanese dates go okay, which you managed to Yeah, see? they were great. They were really, really good. I mean, I have kind of a surreal memory of it because we did four dates. Um, we basically flew out there. I remember going out for a meal with the promoter on the night we got there. Then we did these gigs and then flew back. So before you'd kind of acclimatised to the different time zone, you were back sort of feeling really strange. <laughs> and, and this on the back of the, the Bowie thing, you know. So God, that must have been of... weird because last year did they, re they released that single with Bowie and Morrissey, didn't they? That's right, yeah, Cosmic Dancer, yeah. Cosmic Dancer, yeah, weird one. But then, I mean, this is an album that I know no one seems to rate that much. I don't even know Morrissey, but I really love Maladjusted. I've got great fond memories of Maladjusted and the track called Trouble Loves Me. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Did you enjoy yeah, that, that album? Because it seems to be one that no one, everyone just skirts over. But you think, well, it wasn't that bad. 
Well, it was a pretty good album. I mean, it's a shame we didn't we didn't have, you know, there were some great B-sides that we did for singles later in the year, and they're actually much better than some of the tracks on the album, but obviously they weren't written at the time, so we couldn't record them. Um, so there, there was a, a better album, perhaps, if we waited a little bit longer, you know, but uh, Morrissey was suddenly enthused and keen to get back into the studio. Um, so we started that year, January and February uh, 97, we recorded that album. Did loads of work in 97. It was really good. Um, and yeah, the, the, that was a bit like the Vauxhall and I session, really. Uh, mm. It just, the mood was good and it, it everything just fell into place. I just I just thought that, I mean, I suppose it was a game Steve Lily White was the producer, but it had a nice vibe to it. I mean, I have to say, I've got a weak spot for um, Roy's Keen, even though that is a bit of a naff song. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, you know, I've got this great idea for a song. It's a pun. It's a pun. I, 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 know, I was watching it. I watched George Formby films and then Match of the Day, and I got <laughs> this idea. <laughs> I know. I do like it, and I know it's like oh, you know, but it's a great B side. But I do really but, like that song. Yeah, I yeah, think, well, yeah. But I mean, obviously, again, we did everything instrumentally. So when we heard that, we thought, really. <laughs> <laughs> is that it <laughs> a window cleaner i know Jesus yeah Christ. <laughs> but i think you know trouble loves me was that because that's quite an, one of those epic songs isn't it as well it is yeah it's a lovely song it's a really good song on the flesh um, rampage at your age so yeah that, that might have been a better single really than roy's keen but um they've kind of reissued it but without without roy's keen Roy's keen on it actually I think yeah yeah I, I didn't get the reissue this is a couple of different tracks on there isn't there and yeah that's and a, Satan Re Rejected My Soul was a good one as well yeah that was a good one good, good rock and roll tune yeah it was all good so that was that the last moment with Morrissey or was there any more that that album yeah well that was the um the the, the last moment was actually was uh TFI Friday playing um Satan uh, rejected my soul that was the last thing I ever did um, at the end of that year so after the album you know there was a, a short period uh, while that was all being readied um, and singles came out uh, Alma Matters first single we did Top of the Pops and some other TV things for Channel 5 then we went over and did the late show with Letterman in New York um, and then we did a did a 50 day tour uh, mostly in America, a few Scandinavian dates. Um, How was your American tour? Was the was because there was this you know, thing about the Mexican Mexican people nation. The Mexican people, yes. Did they was <laughs> was was had Morrissey got his following then? Of you know, there, there was a big following. I, I think the the big Mexican thing happened after my time, right? Although I mean, obviously we played San Diego this big open air gig in San Diego. I, I guess there may have been a few Mexicans there. <laughs> might have been. Where was. There, wasn't, there wasn't this kind of thing, you know, the... That's yeah, I, I, I think the, you know, the Oi Esteban tour and all that was, was after my time, I think it was a massive... Yeah. The, the Mexican people suddenly... So really, is it the case, uh, I mean, I've, I suppose I've done a few interviews with people who have, you know, like Earl Slick and, you know, Garson who worked with Bowie and other people, uh, you know, people who wait in, you know, it's almost like, my God, one minute you're, you're there on tour in the, you know, doing the studio 
the album and then next minute you're thinking oh no right nothing's on what's it like as, as a musician dealing with with that kind of unpredictability you, you get used to it really um because obviously we're, we're now coming out of but we've come out of the lockdowns and everything i mean nothing i haven't done anything for a couple of years i did one festival last year that was the only gig i did one gig um and next Saturday, I'm playing my first indoor gig for just over two years, which is going to be kind of oddly normal, really. Yes. <laughs> you know, I sort of feel familiar, but it'll be kind of like, oh, this is actually a bit weird. There were people here. Yes. <laughs> and and also, hope, been... hope that everybody in the band don't get yeah, COVID, yeah. which is always now everyone well, no 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 yeah COVID's not here everyone seems to be getting it so it's a bit strange it's like yeah yeah no it's officially over but unofficially i think it's still going on <laughs> <laughs> but it's much worse now so that's good yeah because you did you you know i don't know i know it was one of those things you didn't know anybody who had COVID. no more people than you know have got COVID than not got yeah COVID, yeah so it's a bit yeah yeah but anyway, people aren't dying. Yeah, I'm slightly apprehensive, but sort of also excited about doing it, you know. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just low-key things, but, you know, it's going to be nice. It'd be nice to get back into the groove. Did you ever play yeah. Las Vegas, by the way? I did, yeah, yeah. Was that with Morrissey? It was, yeah. Was it a good experience? It was, yeah. It's kind of weird. We, um, we played... Um, I can't remember the venue, but at, at the front of the venue was one of those hard rock cafe things with all the memorabilia you know like one of Elvis's Vegas jumpsuits and all that kind of stuff yes I think that's where John I think John Entwistle might have died in one of those hotels that hard rock. yeah 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 I believe so yeah with cocaine it, and it's kind of weird when you drive into Vegas we we drove in at night and overnight it's, it's just I mean you know you see it in films but when you when you see it in real life it's it's wow this is it's sort of larger than life you know it's very surreal all these lights and all these things happening actually the, the, the strange thing with vegas is the perspective if that's the right word because it looks like oh that's not that far away but because the buildings are so big it's like actually, yeah. it's, you know so there's the whole thing with scale it's just a bit strange and especially yeah yeah we used to go there quite a bit because we quite like the national parks around that area so you could fly into vegas have a few nights see a cirque du soleil show and then go get a rented car and do a few national parks and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. So that was quite fun, really. So, um, yes, good times. So then, but then I just saw your discography. You've been on loads of people's work and you've got into the world that is Thea Gilmore and Catherine Williams, haven't you? Yes, yes, I did that. After Morrissey, um, you know, I thought, well, I'll just kind of go back to mooching around and playing with people here, there and anywhere. Um, yeah, so I just started doing sessions. Uh, there was a resurgence in uh, singer-songwriters. Um, and, uh, you know, singer-songwriters love double bass. So. They do. It gives, it's, I, got, I thought, it's got soul. Yeah, yeah. And, I and thought, also well, it looks you know, so good in videos. It does, yeah. And I thought, you know, I could uh, I could get something going here, um, and it was great fun. I, I really enjoyed it. it. It was quite nice. It was quite a contrast playing in largely acoustic settings. You know, I mean the Catherine Williams thing when we we would go out and do a gig, there was no amplification. 
you know, I, I, I took an amp on the first few gigs and I thought, wait a minute, I've got it down so low, it might as well be off. And I thought, wow, this is great. I don't have to turn up with a big amp. I can just turn up with my bass and it's easy. It's, it's almost portable. <laughs> yeah, and you play probably on the album, which has In a Broken Dream, which was one of my favourite songs. Which, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is gorgeous. So can you remember that, you know, that particular session, Relations? Uh, relations. Relations. Yeah. But can you remember the track I, In a Broken Dream? I think Rod Stewart... I can remember it, yeah. We, we didn't... We recorded... See, the first album with Catherine, they'd kind of recorded... Um, and I met her at a gig and said, Look, if you want some double bass, um, give me a shout, give her a card. And then said, Look, can you come and dub some double bass on this? Because it was only a couple of tracks with electric bass on. And I came and did some double bass. I went up to Newcastle and just, I really just banged it down because my son was about to be born and I didn't, you know, Newcastle's quite a long way from London. <laughs> I, I didn't want to hang around, so it was all one and two take stuff and I was on the train downtown. <laughs> so it was a bit rough, but, you know, I quite like that anyway. They like um, the authentic. And then the second album we did as a band in a, in a studio. We went over to Monmouth in Wales, uh, Mono Valley Studio, just down the road from Rockfield, and did that more as a band. But then the third album, which was the, you know, the covers one, we did it all separately. So we, we didn't, you know, we recorded parts separately. So I would go in and, and overdub bass onto, you know, on what was already there, the drums and the guitars. Yeah. So it's just me, her and Dave Morn in his house studio in Newcastle, just yeah. putting down bass lines. Yes. Blimey. And then after that, you're, you know, you just played with so many different people from Sam Lee to Merritt. Marianne Faithful as well. Oh yes, dear Marianne, yeah. Did that go okay? Mar Marianne, yeah, it was fantastic. One of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. Um, we did 13 countries in three months, which was really, really good. My God, that must have been exhausting. And, you know, being in um, places like Berlin and getting a standing ovations before you've even finished the set. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite amazing. I think in Berlin we got like eight standing ovations. It was incredible. Yes, God, that must um, have been just so nice to have that appreciation. Yeah, it was lovely. <laughs> it's really nice. And Marianne's great. She's lovely, really nice. And there was no, it, it wasn't kind of, you know, when, you, when you're backing somebody who's, who's a, a big star, um, she was just one of the band. She said, there's no hierarchy here. We're all in the same band, and it was great. And we we just hang hang out, and it was it was totally cool. It was really really good. And I thought I must resist asking her about sixty seven, <laughs> even though I'm really tempted. And so I permitted myself one question, which I thought was really funny. We were, we were sitting having lunch together one day. I said, Marianne, I've got to ask you, uh, and I hope you don't mind. Where did you first meet the Beatles? And she said, at the same party I first met the Stones. <laughs> and I thought I really should have known that <laughs> and after that I didn't ask any more questions because I thought you've just told me everything I need to know <laughs> it was also matter of fact you know and I just thought it was wonderful yes my god I know there was a really good book came out last year didn't um why Marianne Faithful Matters which I remember getting oh I've not got that there you go no, no. 
Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Nice, nice. So look, with your, and I mean, to be honest, you're, you're sort of being really played so many people. So if you were able to tell your 16 to 18 year old self, you know, a little bit of uh, wisdom or advice, and frankly, it goes back to those heady days in Norwich at the Gala Ballroom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there anything you would have whispered in their ear which would have possibly helped in the future, future um, path of what you took? I'd say practice more diligently. <laughs> I, th I think I'd, I'd probably, I mean, I don't know if it would have made much difference, but I think I'd have done what I did later, which was learn to read music and really, I, I taught myself music theory as well, um, which is, you know, when you're freelancing, it's, it's incredibly helpful when you're on a session and, and somebody says something to you. It's, it's, it's a language, really. Yeah. If you speak language, then you've got a head start, obviously. You know, you don't want to be the guy in the room saying, well, what did he mean by that? What's a dominant? <laughs> Is he talking about a person? <laughs> no, he means a chord. Um, you know, it's, so I did, I did all that. But really, when I was young, um, I, I don't know if I'd have listened to me, you know, mm. because it was about, first off, it was about being in a band. When I had a, a mental, these days it would be called a bucket list. The, the idea was was get an instrument, be in a band, do a gig, make a record, do a tour. And the end of the list was Tour America. And then within yeah, 16 years of playing, I'd done all that. Um, unfortunately, I, list, I missed off make loads of money. <laughs> so I, I would probably say add make loads of money to your list. It will come in very handy. Yes, I suppose that's the one that the sting probably put that one down because he was more practical, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was. For me, it was, you know, it, it was, it was one for the gig, two for the gig, and three for the money. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I know. Well, look, thank you. I mean, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much. It was just, um, it's amazing to hear the Morrissey stories. By the way, it was some. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thrown in with exhale. Fireball XL5. But um, yeah, well, thank you. And if you want, I can always um, send you the link and um, you can always, if you have a social media page, use it. So um, yeah, 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 that would be good. But that's See great. That and are you still in touch with uh, Boz or Alan or Spencer? Uh, well, Spencer lives in America. Um, he never was the most sort of in touch kind of guy anyway. No. Um, even when we were in the same room, <laughs> he was kind of not totally aloof there were there were times when he was more social than others and he, he kind of spencer you just sort of yeah if he's blowing this way it's fine and if he isn't that's also fine alan yeah we message each other occasionally i haven't seen bars for years um it, the the morrissey thing is its own entity and and once you leave you sort of you know unless you've got a visa you don't get back in no, this is right. I didn't renew my visa, so you know. There you go. Yes. Did you go through the book and see if you're in it? I'm not in it. Aren't you? I I, I don't exist. <laughs> I left. I I did see an interview on on YouTube sometime later. Um, I can't remember who did it. Um, and one of the questions were, you know, do you take it personally when somebody leaves the band? And they said yes. Very hurt by that, you know. And, and I left the band. I mean, in the end, um, 
you know, he wasn't speaking to me um, because I'd made it, it, it just got a bit messy at the end. And I thought, you know what, I really don't need this. There's, there's always a balance for me um, where if it's, you know, more than 50% good, then it's worth doing. If, if the balance tips the other way and it's more bad than good, you know, then it's like, yeah, I think my life will be better without all this rubbish I'm experiencing right now. Um, so I left and although you know Alan came around to see me a month or two after I'd left and said you know there's going to be lots of work you should really reconsider and I knew that he'd been sent around um, to see me to see if I'd stay in the band you know which is kind of quite nice I suppose to be wanted but I thought you know I just really can't do that anymore I need and, and I wanted to do something different musically as well yeah. You know, I was. It was a bit like um, Fable XL Five and moving on to the Stingrays. I wanted to to experience different things, different musicians. To, you know, I didn't know what was ahead, but you know, if you don't go for something different, nothing different happens. You know, um, yes, I can yes. still be there. I mean, it always, it always, it, from an outsider's point of view, you think, yeah, that'd be amazing. But yeah, I also know that sometimes. It doesn't often, you know, once you've got that gut feeling, it's probably best to keep going with it, really. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Anyway, that's been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you for this. And um, yes. <laughs> yeah. This has been good. Well, have a lovely. Are you in London now? I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's where I've been most of my life. Yeah. It's where I am with my family. Um, it's home. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, look, take care and I'll let you yeah. walk on for the evening. But thanks a lot, Ed. And, um, it's been a pleasure, David. Yeah, yeah. I look forward best. to uh, hearing it. Yeah, take care. Yeah. See you. Bye bye. Right. Take care. Bye bye. Yes, indeed, dear listener. That's how you end a conversation with great gusto. I do like keeping it in because it does feel a bit like I'm fumbling around in the dark looking for the black cat that isn't there. Anyway, look, I'm very English. I just have to cope with it. Massive thank you to Johnny Bridgewood for giving me the time for that interview and conversation. Um, you can find out more if you go around. Just Google Johnny Bridgewood and uh, it's all there and much more. Hopefully more material in the new year. Anyway, if you want to contact me, I don't know why. Yes, just if it's nice, I don't know. You can, David Eastall, um, C86 Show. No, don't do not do that. Go for sort of C86 Show on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Yes, just do that, C86 Show, and you'll see, see me somewhere there. Um, there's nothing else to say, really. Um, you know, yes, I've been... There's lots of these, actually, on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, so you can also find... I don't know, nearly 800 interviews with indie bands from the 80s and a bit of obsession with David Bowie, so that's life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.